This is the Responsible Sports Podcast, presented by Liberty Mutual Insurance. In this episode, we welcome Kobe Jones. Responsible Sports is a program dedicated to supporting youth sport coaches and parents who help our children succeed both on and off the field. Each episode, our host Jim Thompson, CEO of Positive Coaching Alliance, will be joined by professional coaches, Olympians, world-class athletes, general managers, and leading youth sports experts who share their insights from their own sports careers. In this podcast, Tina Sire, Chief Impact Officer of Positive Coaching Alliance, steps in for Jim and talks with former three-time USA Soccer World Cup midfielder and National Soccer Hall of Famer, Kobe Jones. Well, I would tell them all, remember that it is a responsibility. A lot of people get that captain's band and think, okay, I got this. Woo, it's a, it's a mark for me. But one thing they have to remember is when they weren't captain and they saw someone else's captain, a lot of the times you're looking at exactly what they're doing, mm-hmm. how they're acting. Yeah. You know, and that's important for these kids to really understand that. Kobe discusses the mental aspect of soccer and provides some useful tips to youth athletes about playing multiple sports. Kobe also emphasizes the important responsibility that a team captain has on and off the field. Kobe, I want to start off by introducing you to our responsible sports audience. Kobe Jones grew up playing AYSO soccer in Southern California, and after graduating from Westlake High School, he went on to play his college soccer at UCLA, where he won a national championship in 1990. He got his start with the U.S. national team in 1992 and played in his first World Cup in 1994. Shortly thereafter, he was picked up by the English team Coventry City, a member of the Premier League. In 1996, after stints with professional teams in Germany and Brazil, he found a permanent home with the Los Angeles Galaxy. After an incredible 307 appearances for the Galaxy over 11 seasons, including two MLS championships, he officially retired in 2007. The Galaxy retired his number 13, making it the first number retired in MLS history. Kobe is the all-time leader in international appearances for the U.S. national team with 164. Highlights of this career include three World Cups and a win of the 2002 CONCACAF Gold Cup. In 2011, Kobe was inducted into the National Soccer Hall of Fame in his first year of eligibility. Kobe's coaching career began in 2007 as an assistant coach of the Galaxy, and he now consults for the New York Cosmos and works as an analyst for the Pac-12 Networks. Kobe, thanks so much for joining the Responsible Sports audience and me today. Uh, Well, thanks for having me. It's a joy to be here. So I've read that you actually started playing AYSO soccer when you were only five. And I'm curious if you can tell our responsible sports listeners a little bit about your start in youth sports and maybe some of your parents' initial feelings about you playing soccer. Okay, it's, a, it's actually a little bit of a funny story. I mean, starting in the early 70s, my parents were from Mobile, Alabama. They didn't know much about the sport. But it, funny enough, it was one of those things I was in the back of the station wagon and we were driving by the local park, and I saw my cousin. And as you know, young kids tend to do, he was playing in the park, and I started screaming, hey, I wanted to play, I wanted to play. So my parents naturally, the great parents that they were, pulled over, and uh, they brought me out to the pitch and, and you know, went up to the coach and asked him, hey, can he you know, get out there and kick the ball around you know, with his cousin, the coach? And this tells you how different things are nowadays. They just 
toss me a jersey and I just put it on and I went out there and just started kicking the ball around and, you know, and the rest is history. It's a little bit of a change from what you see nowadays on all the different steps and everything you have to do to, you know, to actually join a team and join a variety of different sports. Absolutely. So, um, so being from Mobile, Alabama, I guess soccer at that time in the early seventies sort of wasn't as common. Um, did, did your parents sort of, were they comfortable with soccer or what was their, um, you know, their initial feeling about that sport? You know, my parents were very adventurous, and they were very much along the lines of let me play and do whatever I want. And they said, okay, they probably were thinking I was just going through a phase. Okay, he wants to kick this ball around. They probably couldn't even pronounce the name soccer and had no clue what it was about. But (laughs) the fact that I was out there, you know, having a good time and running around, I think it grew on them, you know, especially the fact that young, you know, young boy that has tons of energy you know let him go out there kick the ball around you know drain some of that energy out and play they probably just thought I was having a good time you know that's all they really cared about that's great that's great now I know you played multiple sports at Westlake High School and I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about that experience of being a multi-sport athlete and then at what point did you really know soccer was going to end up being your main sport well, in high school, I played a variety of sports, like you said. I played, you know, soccer, obviously, and I played, I ran track, you know, and then outside of school, I was also, I played baseball every once in a while, and, and then obviously with my friends, a variety of different sports. But to be very honest, I didn't, I didn't know soccer was going to be my main sport as far as a professional career until I got beyond college and got into the Olympic team and went to the Olympics. Mm-hmm. As far as the sport for myself... I knew it was my main sport because it was the sport that I loved since I was a kid, mm. you know, since I started out. I just loved kicking the ball around and playing and having a good time, you know, basically forcing my parents to go on all those weekend trips to tournaments all around the state. You know? it, was, uh, it, it was one of those things that's kind of innate where I, just, just, I was going to go play it you know, as much as I can for as long as I could. So I want to ask a follow-up there. You know, I think for so many parents today, they feel this pressure to have their child specialize in a sport if they're going to be able to make it at the next level. Um, And, you know, they have club team coaches or trainers saying, hey, if your son specializes in soccer now, he can get a college scholarship. And I think you just told me you didn't even know till after your experience at the Olympics that soccer could be your career and and to go on to the pros, um, which is obviously different than a lot of the parents, sort of the messages they get today. And I'm curious if you can just sort of talk a little bit about the, the pressure to specialize early and maybe how in your case that really didn't pan out in the same way. Yeah, I know. I know now there is a, a lot of pressure from a variety of different sources, from coaches, you know, from from the kids, from parents, from from all different arenas about. Okay, you stick with one sport and you just focus on that. You know, for me it was very different. I played a lot of different sports and kind of figured out what I wanted to do. I'm a big believer that you should play a lot of different things. I think it's good for you mentally and physically. Mm. The mental aspect that you don't get burnt out. Mm-hmm. You know, that you're not burnt out after a few years and feeling the pressure of you've got to do this, you've got to do this. Let's be honest, in high school, there's still kids. Mm-hmm. You know, let the kids play and experience a variety of different things. And then on the physical side of it, you know, just for your body, you, you know, if you're just, I mean, if you think about it, if you're sitting there and just kicking a ball, kicking a ball, kicking a ball the same way over mm-hmm. and over and over, mm-hmm. you know, that becomes an issue. You know, but if you do a ver- to expand on that, if you do a variety of different sports where you're playing soccer and then you're playing your baseball, you're running track, you are 
putting the stresses on your body in a lot of different ways. So your body gets stronger, you know, in that aspect, you know, and that, and to be very honest with you, it, it's a, a lot of doctors will tell you that it's better to play a lot of different sports. You know, the sports medicine doctors will tell you that because you're not just focusing, putting the stresses on the same muscles all the time for years and years. Right. Avoiding sort of that repetitive stress injury that we see now younger and younger. So talking about track, I mean, one of the things that you've always been known for is your speed. And I'm curious if that's something that you just sort of always naturally had or if that's something that you really worked hard on and a, a part of your game that you really had to put in some serious, you know, serious time over the years to, to keep. You know, when I hear this question, and people ask me that a lot, I, I always want to say, oh, yeah, it was natural and, and it just came with it. But now that I, when I really think about it, I think I really did put a lot of time and effort in, into it because alongside soccer from all those years when I was five years old, I got to say since I was probably like eight or nine, I was running track too. So that in, in and of itself is putting a lot of time and effort into it. So that kind of goes back to what we talked about before. Mm-hmm. Those playing a different sport can actually help you in the one that you finally pick and do. What events did you compete in in track and field? Uh, I I was a sprinter. Mm-hmm. I have to admit it. I was a long-distance guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anything over a 400, I was done. Yeah. So I ran the 400. I ran the 200. I ran the 100. I did the 1600 relay and the, the 400 relay. And awesome. I obviously did the – oh, and I also did the long jump and the triple jump. Um, so, so I know in high school, I think you played a year behind Eric Winalda, um, you know, another great U.S. national team great. And I'm curious what that experience was like. And then if you can give any advice to some of our younger listeners about learning from those around them and maybe, you know, not just learning from their coaches, but even learning from their teammates. Well, we all know Eric Winalda is a bit of a character and he was the same back in high school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was an interesting experience. But I mean, to be to be very honest, he opened up a lot of doors for a lot of people in yep. in soccer in in that area. Um, so for me, especially when I talk to kids about that, and and talk to coaches and but mainly kids, it's it's almost that thing of where when the team does better, you know, everyone gets recognition. Mm-hmm. Even though I was a year behind Eric, you know, and and he was getting a lot of recognition for everything that he was doing the attention that he brought and because the team was doing so well, he mm-hmm. was getting more attention. And with his individual attention, all the coaches would come in and want to see him. Mm-hmm. But you know what? While they were looking at him, they saw other players. That's, That's how UCLA saw me, mm-hmm. you know, and started paying attention to what I was doing. That's how the other schools saw me and said, hey, who's this kid? Yeah, Eric's, Eric's a great player, but also, hey, look at this guy. Oh, hey, look at this guy. And, and, and that's important. So the jealousy factor and everything like that, that, that tends to, to, to raise its ugly head when mm-hmm. someone gets a lot of attention, people got to you know, step back a minute, and go, a minute and go, you know what, maybe it's not so bad because if these people bring attention to himself and to the team, everyone's going to be the better for it. That's great. That's a great answer. Um, so, so one of the things that just amazed me was to read that you actually were a walk-on um, to the UCLA team, which just looking back on your incredible career, you know, I think anyone would have guessed you were a scholarship athlete from the beginning. And I'm curious what you feel like you know, players who are currently in high school um, can learn from this when they're thinking about aspiring to play at college. And you know, what can those players and their parents learn from your story? I think one of the most important things that they can learn from from my story is is the never give up 
mm-hmm. attitude. Mm-hmm. And I know that is a, something that a lot of people say, but it, it, it's very true. And especially in the sport of soccer, and, and this pertains to a variety, to all sports actually, um, not everyone is going to be seen. Mm-hmm. Not everyone is going to be recognized, and not everyone's going to get attention where they want it to be. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you got to take things in your own hands, and you know, push and work towards that goal. Mm-hmm. You know, I I decided, you know what, UCLA was the school that I wanted to go to. UC, I was going to give the opportunity to to actually go out there and walk on. I said, you know, why not? You know, take the chance. That's that's something else that I would say. Take the chance. What's mm. the worst that can happen? So I went out there, took the chance. I made I made it when I walked on there, and you know, and a little story to go a little bit longer into this is, I wasn't supposed to play. Mm-hmm. You know, I was supposed to redshirt that first year, and Ziggy can, Ziggy Schmidt, my coach at the time, could tell you that I was supposed to redshirt. But you know, the team went on a road trip. They didn't do well, and when they came back, Ziggy told me, "Look, we're going to play you. We're going to play you in the next game. It was a Las Vegas tournament." And my first opponent was against Virginia. I came in at halftime and did a good job. It was against Bruce Arena, future mm-hmm. coach of mine. <laughs> I did a, a good job, got a couple opportunities at goal, but didn't do much. But the coach saw my, my speed and my desire and said, you know what, we're going to start you in the next game. Too. Mm-hmm. So I played against UConn in the next game, and then I got a goal and an assist in mm-hmm. that game. And from that day on, I started every game at UCLA. That's a great story. Um that's a really great story. So, so talking about Ziggy Schmidt, who we actually had the opportunity to interview as part of this podcast series before, what an incredible coach. Um, so you're, you're coach at UCLA. What are some of the coaching lessons that you feel like you learned from him, and how did he stand out as a coach? I think Ziggy stood out because he was, I think, ahead of his time in the United States, and he gave college players a, a, a glimpse into what it took to be a professional player. And I think that's what was so important. You know, in in, in college, a lot of people know, you know, there's, there's, there's goofing off. <laughs> there's, <laughs> along with the, the studies and, you know, the, the playing, there's a lot of goofing off and stuff. But I think Ziggy showed that, okay, if you're going to do that, fair enough, fair enough. It's college, you're, you're experimenting mm-hmm. and stuff. But when you get on the pitch mm-hmm. and it's time to work, you got to focus on that. Mm-hmm. You know, be it training or or during the game, and that's one thing that I could take from him that he really brought to my game, to mm-hmm. the to the sport for me because um, I became more of a serious player. He also gave me opportunities to travel overseas and see the game in a different light. You know, hmm. I was the typical American uh, kid at the time that was I just played the game because I loved it. Really didn't know about soccer outside of my local team, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> nothing overseas, but. With the experiences that I had with him, the the watching of a variety of different games with him, he really opened up my eyes and, and broadened my horizons in the soccer world. That's great. That's great. Um, you know, in your intro, I talked about how you, you have this record of the most caps or international matches played in U.S. team history. And um, I'm, I'm wondering if you could tell us, I think, again, people might assume that right out of college, you just jumped onto the U.S. team and started earning those caps. Um, but that's not exactly how it went. And I'm hoping you could tell our listeners um, about that time between college and, and making the U.S. national team and um, how you stuck with it and, and just sort of that story. Yeah. Um, the process of getting into the national team was, in, it was very interesting to me because I had a bad view of the whole national 
team aspect because I had never made anything at a mm. younger age. Yeah. Like I said, I was passed over all the time. You know, mm. no, one, no one really paid attention. And when I got to college, there was, um, I was at the perfect age where the Olympics, the 92 uh, Olympics were coming up. Mm-hmm. And I was part of that general group that was put together of 40 or 50 players that they looked at mm-hmm. um, because I had done so well in college. And I had gone with the Olympic team, traveled on a few games, but every year I had been cut, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. at a certain time. You know, I'd been cut from the Olympic team. and But I just said, you know what, that's fine. So I just kept on playing and kept doing my thing in, uh, in college. And then when it got time to actually go to the Olympics, you, you know, I – was on the traveling team, and it came to that time where I usually got cut, but I didn't, and I made the team, went to the Olympics, had a great showing there at the Olympics where after the Olympics in Barcelona, I got a call a couple months later from the coach of the the national team, Bor Milotonovic, saying, hey, come in. We want to see you. Uh, we want to give you a shot to go f- to the World Cup. You know, And that was one of those things where I said, you know what? Let's give it a shot. You know, college can wait a little bit. I'll finish up later. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, talk to my parents about it, talk to my family, and, and they were on board with me to, to give it a shot. And I finally, you know, after a long two and a half, or well, two years of training down in Mission Viejo, mm-hmm. <laughs> the World Cup came about. And, you know, I ended up making that team and, you know, participating in the games and, you know, finishing up with three World Cups and 164 caps under my belt. Mm-hmm. It's an incredible story. Um, what was it like in Barcelona in 92 playing in that, that international, like sort of your first major international tournament? You know what, that was, that was a very special time being in Barcelona. The funny thing is, not a lot of people know this, but that it was like one of those things that was meant to be. Is that 92 Barcelona, the mascot? You know what the name of that mascot was? Oh, my gosh, you got me. Kobe. The name of the mascot was Kobe. Nice, nice. Spelled yes. the exact same way. <laughs> That's funny. It, it was uh, like one of it, it was a great experience uh, that people don't realize. You know, outside of that, besides uh, being in one central area where all the athletes are together, you, you'll never experience anything else like that in your, in your life. Hmm. Everyone you see is an athlete and and uh, striving to be the best in their sport during this one tournament. It was a, it was an amazing experience for me you know it really opened my eyes to everything that sport has to offer not let alone just soccer you know that that was great overall and one little tiny story that um, I have to tell <laughs> because uh, it was one of those amazing moments where the meant to be happens when we were getting ready to go to the opening ceremonies which we had to fight to get there because our coach was like oh you know because soccer moves all around there you don't need to be there we, we don't need to be there and the all of us players are like, hey, this is once in a lifetime. And we fought, and we got to go to the opening ceremonies. And as we're walking through on Team USA, it was funny because right as I walked by the, in line, you know, the people that were in charge stopped the line right behind me and opened it up. And I'm like, what is going on? And who did they slide in right behind us? The whole dream team. So there was literally the soccer players, the dream team in between us, and then more of the soccer team. It was really funny. Nice, <laughs> nice. It was a great experience. They allowed the dream team to be part of your group. That's great. Yeah, they um, wanted to be part of soccer. You know? That's awesome. That's a great story. Um, so so one, one question I wanted to ask you, it looks like on multiple different teams you've served in the role of captain. 
And I'm curious what advice you would give um, athletes, either high school or younger, who are in that role of captain, um, of how they could be successful in that role. The fillers of emotional tanks so that every person has an emotional tank. And if you surround yourself with people who give you specific positives that you're doing well, they fill your tank versus people who are always criticizing or correcting or telling you what you could do differently, which drains the tank. And um, there's actually this ratio that comes out of um, sports psychology and educational psychology that you need five tank fillers for every tank drainer to keep your head up and to stay positive and feel like you can learn. And I'm curious with this concept of filling the emotional tank if there are certain coaches or certain teammates that stand out um, in your, your career of playing soccer that you think were especially good at, at filling emotional tanks. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. With fillers and drainers, you know, that's the best way I would put that. And right off the bat, you know, the most important thing, I think, is your, your main two fillers, and that's your parents. Mm-hmm. You know, your parents and your, and, and your families and friends. That, mm-hmm. That's first and foremost. That's where you got to find them because mm. – when it comes down to it, when you are playing soccer and you're at training and you're at games and you add all that time up, that's just a few hours compared to the time that you're spending with your family at home. Yep. You know? So they have to be the ones that are the most important. They're the ones that are standing behind you, you know, and filling that tank up as much as possible. They've got to be that, that ground support, number one. Then it's the friends, mm. you know, that, are, that you hang out with all the time, the ones that, that are standing right by your side, standing shoulder to shoulder, you know, when all the bad times come up, you know, and then it's, then it's your teammates. Mm. It's your teammates and your coaches that got to be there behind you as well. For, for me, my parents were, were supportive all the time. Like I said, they were willing to drive to all these tournaments and, and be supportive and drive my friends to all these games, you know, mm-hmm. through my whole career. And then there were teammates that were, very supportive as well in, in a variety of different ways. Um, you know, Eric Winalda was one. He was he was supportive in his own special way, I'll say. <laughs> but he was supportive in the on the distinct soccer aspects of things, letting mm-hmm. players know, you know, where they stood and ha- and how how they were within the game. You know, being a good player and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Coaches, you know, there is a few a Walter Androwski, a, a um, Brian Blau, and then I'll also say Dave Winalda, you know, Eric Winalda's mm-hmm. dad. Mm-hmm. You know, they were all, if I had to put them all together and just generalize the term for them, they are all fillers in letting letting all of us know basically why not you? Why not you? That's a very important thing, a very important concept for, for any athlete to understand because we see you know, all these other players doing this and that and go, mm-hmm. oh, wow, they're great. But the, all of them had that one thing in common. Why not, you guys? I mean, you all are going through the same process that all these other guys are doing. They're learning the exact same stuff you are. So mm-hmm. why not you guys be as good as them? Be That's great. A, a competitor like them. Be mm. leaders like them. And through those guys, that's something that I really picked up, that they had us asking ourselves, yeah, why not us? We can do it too, you know, so we got that little bit of swagger, so to say, as we uh, came through the ranks.
So I think one of the times when it's the most important to be surrounded by people who are fillers is when you're playing in a, a hostile environment. And, you know, you've had the opportunity to play in some of the toughest stadiums in the world. Obviously, like Mexico City comes to mind. And I, I'm curious if you can talk to our audience just a little bit about how do you approach games that are in one of those really tough environments and what did you do to prepare for that? Well, well let me tell you this. At Azteca, nothing can prepare you for that in stadium. <laughs> you can you can do whatever you want, but until you're there, you don't know what's coming at you. But um, in general, in, in those hostile environments, and we talk about the fillers and the people that are going to support you, that, that's when you really have to have a strong network amongst your teammates. You know, because when you step out, you can prepare for the game, and, and your coaches give you all that preparation beforehand, letting you know that you can do it, that you can go out there. But when you step out on the pitch, when the fans are screaming and yelling and you can't hear, you know, from myself playing on the right wing to trying to scream to Ernie Stewart on the left wing, mm. it's not going to happen. You're wow. not going to hear each other. So you can only really count on the other 11 guys on the field and, and at times the guys on the bench and your coach. And so that's got to be a strong-knit group. Mm-hmm. You know, it has to be that, that relation ha- relationship has to be established not just – during that game, but beforehand, mm-hmm. through the days, the weeks, the months of practice together, mm-hmm. you know, where you know that you can depend on the guy next to you, that he's got your back, that if you miss a tackle, that he's right there, you know, the, he's there for you to back you up and make that saving tackle for you, that, that you'll do that extra sprint for him when he can't track back. You mm-hmm. know, those are all things that are so important, and you learn to have, I guess the best way to say it, those things, like the tracking back for someone, tackling for someone, those are fillers without, you know, a vocal way of putting it. That's showing that mm-hmm. you're there for them, you know, mm-hmm. that you're willing to do the work for somebody else. Mm-hmm. That's great. They've got your back. Um, so so playing in the midfield, uh, you know, you had to be both a skilled defender and, and an attacker. And I'm curious sort of what your mentality was um, as a midfielder and sort of how you balance those parts of that role. Uh, how did I balance that? <laughs> I still ask myself after all these years. <laughs> it's, a lot of, it's, it's a lot of hard work. I mean, it, it, to be very honest, it's putting time and time, effort, work on both sides mm-hmm. and it, it it really is another talent and i believe this is a talent desire mm. you've got to have that desire not everybody has it and you've mm. got to work at it you got to have that desire to want to attack and to defend mm-hmm. to be a complete player mm-hmm. that's what a, a, a true midfielder is and that's not you know denigrating any other position but a true <laughs> midfielder has to do it all you know you are Running, especially out on the wing, you're running all the way from one corner flag at times, all the way back to the other corner flag defending. You know, you've just got to give your effort, and you've got to work. You know, that's what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. You know, there are no shortcuts in a midfielder's job. Mm-hmm. You know? That's right. <laughs> you you won't find yourself in that position for very long if you want to do it. Yep. Yep. Um, so inside responsible sports, we, we have this concept of honoring the game and we talk about sort of respecting the roots of the game where we teach players to respect the rules, their opponents, the officials, their teammates and themselves. 
And I think a, a challenge in soccer over the years and, and certainly international at the highest levels has been this issue of diving and, you know, trying to, to earn the call um, through, through the dive. And I know certain things have been done recently to address that. But I'm curious what advice you would give coaches and athletes um, around this issue, both, you know, sort of um, if they're getting frustrated with the other team doing it, how do they handle that? Or how, do you talk to the officials about it? And just talking generally about this issue of diving um, within the sport of soccer. Well, it is an issue, and and I don't like it. I mean, one of the one of my it's funny enough, one of my nicknames in high school, they used to call me Weeble Wobble because he doesn't fall down. I didn't like going down, and uh, you know, Eric Winalda could tell you as well. He always used to tell me dive, dive, because you know hmm. he would end up taking the penalty kicks in the box. I was like, no way. So I'm going to keep going. But uh, you know, for myself, I'm not a big fan of that. I I don't like the little things like that that can really affect the game. I like trying to match myself up one-on-one with someone to really just see who's the better player in that instance. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's the other person, fair enough. I'll work harder to beat them next time. Mm-hmm. If it's me, great. I know I'm doing the right thing so I can t- continue working the way I am. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it is a frustrating aspect. It, it is something that you really have to hold yourself in control when you see other people doing it on especially opposing teams and it affects your results but the best thing to do is like like you mentioned you talk to the referee mm-hmm. you know that that's the best way not getting emotional too emotional mm-hmm. about it mm-hmm. trying to retaliate in some mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. i don't think that's the best way to handle the situation uh, the best thing to do especially if the player, especially if it's kids, if the players go up ahead of time to the referee and say, hey, let's try to keep this clean and, and no diving and no yeah. this or that, I think that has more of an impact on the referee than a parent doing it. Absolutely. I agree. I agree. That's a great point. So just one final question. I know, Kobe, now you're a dad and you've got a two-year-old at home. And I imagine um, all of us with kids, you know, sort of have this hope that our kids will go on and love sports and develop a joy in playing. And if you could describe sort of like the ideal coach um, that you hope your son will have when it comes time for him to, to play, if that's something he wants to do, how would you describe that ideal um, youth sports coach? An ideal youth sports coach, I would think would be someone for my, for my son, especially, and I think for, for kids, I would want someone that is just about them learning the game and having fun with the game. Mm-hmm. Now, I I think with that, don't get me wrong, with that, part of the fun of playing game is playing it well and, and winning at times. A kid, if you're going to lose all the time, they're not going to, they're going to be, I'm done with this. The coach definitely needs to teach the tactical and the technical abilities for the kid to play the game well, but then also has to go out there and try to help the kids win games. Yeah. Now, this does not mean going over the top and just, you know, <laughs> putting in only certain players that can right. play and do certain things. And you, 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 let's say you have the bigger kids, so you just put in big kids and let them do everything. Yeah. No, that's not what I'm talking about. They've got to learn the game as well. They've got to learn it tactically and technically and have fun with it. Yeah. 
Kobe, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to share with me today and with all of our responsible sports listeners. I really feel like your stories and your insights um, are really going to help a number of the parents and the coaches and the student athletes who are out there listening. So thank you so much and congratulations just on an incredible career and uh, wishing you all the best of luck um, with your son and and your future uh, career um, within soccer and as an analyst and a consultant. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. To learn more about Responsible Sports, visit ResponsibleSports.com. You'll find valuable Responsible Sport parenting and Responsible coaching guides, downloadable tools and worksheets, and helpful advice from leading youth sports experts. Music for this podcast has been generously provided by APM Music.